I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm honored to welcome Tom Frieden to our daily podcast edition of the program. Tom joined me when he was leading the CDC in 2016, and I was honored to host him then, and I'm honored to host him now. Of course, you know him as a leading expert on COVID. He is president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. Welcome, Tom. Great to be with you again, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Tom, when I hosted you back in 2016, I asked you why we had not yet experienced the next pandemic. Um, and, and at the time, we thought it would be the next great influenza. We are here now with over a million souls gone and anticipating until there is a vaccine for that number to skyrocket over multiple resurgences. So I just want to ask you directly, what needs to happen in the United States that has not happened yet to control the fatalities and mortalities in this country? There's no one thing that's going to magically make this pandemic go away. We need to chip away at it. And we need to do that by reducing spread, by doing things like the three W's, wear a mask, watch your distance, wash your hands, by closing risky indoor spaces, such as choirs and bars, and also by finding cases and clusters quickly and stopping them from spreading widely. Even if and when we have a vaccine, there's no fairy tale ending to this pandemic. We're still going to need to deal with the virus for the foreseeable future. And chipping away at it also means uh, iteratively improving the quality of our care so that we can have people less likely to get severely ill, less likely to die if they get infected, using some of the new treatments like steroids, an old treatment that now is pretty clear is effective late stage disease for people who are severely ill and figuring out new ways to, to do better. But despite all the, the new stuff, it's the old stuff that we're not doing as well as we could and that really can make a big difference. Masks are not a panacea, but they can make a huge difference in reducing spread. Tom, one of the facts is that we were undisciplined in our reaction from the outset compared to countries like New Zealand and Germany and, of course, Korea and Japan, which already had mask wearing as a more common practice in a non-pandemic environment. So in anticipation of a potential new administration that would bring a more disciplined approach, um, do you see a coherent strategy to apply that discipline in all 50 states? Because that has really been what's lacking, a disciplined strategy in all 50 states. I think the most shocking thing about the failed U.S. response to this pandemic is the lack of focus and organization. Uh, going back multiple presidential administrations, there's a playbook for how to respond in an emergency using an incident management system. But even today, it's not clear who's doing what, who's in charge, what the data is, and there's chaotic communication from the federal government. Um, this is really important. And actually, our work at Resolve 
to save lives with dozens of countries in Africa and around the world by February of 2020 had established this kind of emergency management system for COVID. And these countries have responded effectively. It's, it's really shocking to see the U.S. lack an even minimally competent incident management structure that organizes operations, supplies information so that political leaders fully integrated with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention can make systematic decisions and then communicate them effectively. Communication is crucial to epidemic response and uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has for decades a series of effective communication principles. Be first, be right, be credible, be empathetic, give people practical action they can do to protect themselves and their families. None of this has been done by the administration and it really does make a difference because it results in vigorous resistance to sensible control measures and fundamentally avoidable spread of disease and death and avoidable economic hardship. Tom, when it comes to public morale, and rallying around the coherent strategy that you just described, do you believe that we can start the slate fresh and that uh, if empowered, a scientifically resilient response that is invested in facts and a fact-based approach can speed up mitigation, certainly not elimination, but mitigation and chip away. We, we haven't fallen so far out of sync with the scientific norms that it is possible that the public with a strong coherent federal response can rally morale and, and, and start fresh in effect beginning January of 2021. I think it's going to be difficult to reset the response. There's already such entrenched opposition to mask wearing, such a lack of understanding of case investigation and contact tracing, such suspicion being generated by uh, the politicization of vaccines, that it's, it's not going to be, no matter what happens, it's not going to be quick or easy. We're going to have to recognize that we really are all in this together and making sure that we protect essential workers, for example, is really important, not only because that's the right thing to do. These are largely lower income, black and Latinx people who are doing the jobs that are essential to let us all uh, go on with our lives, but because the virus spreads. And when it's present in any group, it's a risk to other groups as well. And that's true of college kids, that's true of essential workers, that's true of communities that reject uh, public health measures such as mask wearing. But I think we can get back on track if we really focus on being guided by science and communicating consistently, effectively, empathetically. We're all really sick of staying home, of avoiding workplaces, of not having our usual activities. Unfortunately, the virus is still out there. And if we try to act like it's not, it's a lethal error. It will result in death and it will slow our ability to get to a new normal where we can do more of the activities that we enjoy. You mentioned the high risk areas of, of choir practice, uh, church, synagogue, mosque, um, and, and bars. In New York City, 
the infection rate is steadily increasing, even as schools did not open until this week. So they have effectively not reopened and restaurants have also been closed. Um, isn't, is, it, is it not concerning that we would open schools and potentially restaurants when already we're starting to see an uptick in one of the major epicenters? What we're seeing in New York City is focal at this point to certain communities in Brooklyn and Queens. And really the question that we haven't, that only time will tell the answer to is, um, is the increase going to stay in those communities or is it going to spread more widely throughout New York City? This is certainly a dangerous time in New York and that's why it's so important to engage with communities to make sure that we call on the strengths of those communities to stop spread of infection. And what would be your guidance in terms of a recognition at a certain infection rate that we need to re-examine schools and restaurants if they open so that we avoid the paralysis of the healthcare system in New York City and for that matter in other cities that are reopening? What is an infection rate um, and what is sort of the amount of scale that spread that would lead you to suggest to the health authorities and the, and the mayors and governors that they ought to close back down? I think Governor Cuomo has really gotten this right. Um, he's used a 5% threshold. There's nothing magic about that number. And we're actually losing the ability to track percent positive because of what are called point of care tests where people get the results and doctors get the results and may not report that to the health department. So we, we need kind of a more uh, in-depth understanding of where spread is occurring. If you look at the best practices from around the world, one thing that countries do is look at what proportion of cases uh, arise where you can figure out where they spread. In other words, how much uh, unlinked spread or how much mysterious spread is happening. That tells you that you don't have eyes on the virus, that it's spreading in ways that you can't control. And one of the things that's been so concerning is that now for more than a month, New York City has had 300 or so new cases a day. That's a lot of cases. And we, we really don't have information on how well uh, those individuals are, how, how quickly they're being isolated, how completely their contacts are being warned how well their contacts are being quarantined, what proportion of these cases arise from quarantined contacts. And those are all essential uh, indicators to know how well the response is going. Doctor, there are two questions from our 2016 interview that I wanted to revisit. The first was, why have we not experienced the next pandemic? And of course, I was taught growing up that we were long overdue for it. And that is a point that you and Tony Fauci and other medical and health authorities reiterated long before COVID. So do you have any more reflection on why it happened when it happened? Um, or do you really believe that whatever spread occurred in Wuhan or, or elsewhere was something that could not be avoided? And were you yourself surprised that the next pandemic would be a coronavirus as opposed to influenza? I, I think um, we're still at risk for another influenza pandemic. And 
one that could even be worse than the COVID pandemic is currently. It's inevitable that there will continue to be pandemics. What's not inevitable is that we will continue to be so woefully underprepared as a world. And uh, as we look back on what's happened with the response to this pandemic, I think we can identify strengths and weaknesses in the responses of different organizations and countries, look at best practices, but fundamentally, we need to invest far more in readiness in the United States. And we have a proposal to do that that has bipartisan support called the Health Defense Operations Budget Designation. It's a way of walling off our health defense from other priorities so that we can essentially leave partisanship at the species border and recognize that we're all connected in the fight against the microbes. Globally, we need a sustained commitment to improve early warning and early response systems all around the world so that we're not at such high risk of preventable tragedies. We're seeing well over a million deaths from COVID, uh, a price tag that's well over $10 trillion. So we need to invest the, the tens of billions of dollars it's going to cost in the US and globally to make our world and our country safer. Pre-pandemic, what percent of the military security apparatus um, constituted this kind of health preparedness? I'm trying to ask you directly, how small was the pandemic preparedness budget relative to nukes and traditional military arsenal pre-pandemic? Basically, public health is a rounding error on the defense budget. Uh, the Defense Department does have some public health programs. Those programs themselves are, though small for the Defense Department, rather large when it comes to preparedness overall. The key here is the need for sustained investment. Uh, we can't have this kind of cycle of panic, neglect, repeat. And that means we need a new way of funding preparedness that makes a long-term commitment to keeping Americans safer and to reducing the risk of the kind of disruptive and devastating pandemic that we're still, unfortunately, in the middle of here in the US. Would that legislation be sufficient that you allude to? That would be a start, but the key is to stick with it. Persistence. What uh, percent of the budget in a given year do you think needs to be devoted in the wake of COVID to preparedness? What is not sufficient? What is necessary? Right. I think percent probably isn't the right way to think of it. Um, what we suggest is identify the specific activities, the, what are called the budget lines. And there may be several hundred of them across many agencies, of course, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but also the Food and Drug Administration, the Department of Agriculture, and others, and then come up with a multi-year plan to invest in these and don't let up until we get to the uh, state of being much better prepared, not just at the national level, 
but also at the state and local level. In the US, we've had a long-term underinvestment in public health. And as a result, whether it's informatics or contact tracing or communications capacity or vaccination campaigns, our public health infrastructure is run down and we need sustained investment to make sure that we can protect lives and our economy. And that same dynamic plays out globally. The problem is a political one fundamentally, that protecting against pandemics is something that is good government, that will pay off in the long run, but doesn't have a strong electoral mandate. You don't have a lobby group pushing for it. And to the extent you do, it may be groups pushing uh, for government to buy their product, which may or may not be the best way to protect people. Should Vice President Biden win this election, I think he will have a pro-science, pro-public health mandate with respect to mask wearing and some of the other areas that you identify. The other line of inquiry that I pursued in our 2016 interview, doctor, was how can genomic or genetic data be instructive in protecting society in the midst of a pandemic? And so there's, there had been incrementally a lot of work done on the human genome leading to this pandemic, but it's unclear how we've used it helpfully to identify who's more at risk in a pandemic where perfectly healthy 20, 30, 40 year olds can die. Um, what is the answer to that question? Are we not using the genetic data sufficiently to help us eliminate the pandemic or at least eliminate the caseload among most vulnerable people? We are seeing use of genetic epidemiology. This is something that um, we initiated when I was at CDC uh, of uh, advanced molecular detection where we do uh, whole genome sequencing of large numbers of isolates to track uh, spread of the virus. Uh, what we're seeing is that COVID moves so fast it's really hard to use this uh, for practical benefit in real time. There are a few health departments around the country and the CDC is doing some good work on this. Some other countries have, but there's still a whole lot we don't know about how this virus is changing, how the different uh, mutations that occur in the virus may relate to different transmissibility, how, how readily it spreads or how severe the um, uh, the illness is in different people. So there's a lot more to be learned about how to uh, best respond to this pandemic and molecular epidemiology can help. But one of the things that's really important to understand is all of the great laboratory work in the world is not going to tell you what you need to know. You need to do great laboratory work and great shoe leather epidemiology finding out the characteristics of patients, the linkages among patients. There's a lot more to be learned about this virus. Why does it spread in some families and not others? What are the major activities that spread it? What are the strain differences in severity or infectivity? There is just an enormous amount that we still need to learn. And this is something that we can learn more of with a strengthening of our public health infrastructure both at the US and at the global levels. Who is doing that work most effectively right now and, and can uh, relay it publicly so that the world can understand it? There's a group that the CDC has convened. There are various groups 
working globally. There's some good collaboration with uh, a public good of contributing uh, uh, genomic data. But what's really lacking or what's scarce is the connection of genomic data and epidemiologic data. And we're just getting the beginnings of that now. We need much more. And partly that depends on having a much better handle on what's happening epidemiologically, where the virus is spreading and how, and what the pace of transmission is. These are really important questions because not only will addressing them allow us to control the virus better, it will enable us to restart our economy sooner and more safely. Where can our listeners go to find, to date, the most sophisticated analysis of that connection that you refer to? There's probably not one space uh, to look at. There is a sophisticated uh, consortium that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has put together. And uh, our website, preventepidemics.org, has the latest information on science of COVID and a weekly science update, including the genetic epidemiology issues. But I think the, the bottom line here is we don't yet know the bottom line. We're not sure really what the genetic differences mean. Uh, some of the claims are a little beyond what the facts show. And something that uh, Dr. Nancy Messonnier said throughout the month of February really sticks with me. She kept saying, we have to be humble. There's so much we don't know about this virus. And even a mutation of one base pair or two base pairs may have a very major impact on uh, some characteristics of the virus. And we don't yet understand that. So I would say stay tuned. There's no one mother load of great information here, but there is a necessity of continuing to collect and learn. The, the more we learn, the better we can do protecting ourselves and restoring our economies. And final question for you, doctor. You said in our interview in 2016, it's very challenging to do clinical trials in the middle of an epidemic. And we see that, although there has been a robust effort to develop efficacious vaccines that can be deployed and they're three dozen plus uh, companies and, and university partnerships doing this. Um, and you're pointing out that the epidemiological facts, specifically the genetic instructive code that would indicate who's more susceptible, we may not necessarily know that from the process of the development of vaccines. And that, that could be a separate track, but in the track of trials for vaccinations, um, is there one aspect of any one trial that is most encouraging to you right now? Or, or you know, at this juncture in this week, um, how would you kind of summarize the process of vaccinations? And is there anything that's not being done that should be done? Or what is most encouraging in the creation of vaccinations that are at various stages? Well, I'm encouraged by the number of different vaccine candidates out there. Uh, it's undoubtedly the case that some will work better than others. So it's great that we have a lot that are being studied. Um, I'm encouraged by the U.S. government decision to try multiple vaccines at once, because that way you're most likely to get one at least that, that is safe and effective. Uh, the one thing that does concern me is the risk that uh, one or another company's uh, company will uh, 
stop short and cut a trial short before it's completed, that has a risk of robbing us of data on whether, for example, the elderly are protected by a vaccine and whether it's fully safe. So I, I just hope we don't cut any corners on safety for any reasons, because we really can't afford to um, question uh, or to lead to people questioning uh, whether vaccine trials or vaccine approvals have been politicized. There's already so much controversy about the vaccine. We all want a vaccine as soon as safely as possible, but to be effective, a vaccine has to have three things. It has to be safe, effective, and trusted. And if any of those three things are not present, uh, the vaccine isn't going to work. It's not going to be the most important tool that it could be in helping us chip away at this pandemic risk. Doctor, last question. With respect to the vaccinations, um, Florian Cromer at a hospital here, um, Mount Sinai, recently did a very comprehensive thread analyzing all the trials and the results in non-human primates as well as humans. But what struck me was why there aren't any inactive virus um, vaccinations being developed here. It, it sounded like they were being developed in China and he alluded to a certain security clearance that made it possible for them to be created there. And I think the suggestion was that we don't have that clearance in a lot of labs here. Um, but isn't the normal flu shot an inactive virus? And why is America and American companies, why are they not creating or testing those kinds of vaccinations? Well, there are lots of, um, there are lots of different types of vac vaccines being looked at. I think we're going to have to uh, see what works and uh, learn from around the world. One of the things that this pandemic reminds us is that we're all connected and there's a lot that we can learn from other countries and other vaccine approaches. Um, one of the things that we really do want to understand better is um, what is natural immunity to this uh, virus and what can that tell us about which vaccines may be most effective. Are there attenuated strains of the virus that might work well? How long will vaccines work? Fundamentally, we don't yet know um, the best approach to vaccination. So it's important that we learn and share what we're learning as we're learning. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Very nice speaking with you again. Thank you.